Small Business and Startup Stories DSM features conversations with small business owners who share both their victories and failures on their path to success. Small Business and Startup Stories DSM is produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. More tips and resources are available at dsmpartnership.com slash smallbusiness. I'm your host, Mike Caldwell. Travis Sensley, welcome to Startup Stories. You told me a story about taking away all the employee handbooks, cold turkey. Can you retell that story? Thanks for having me, Mike. Sure. Well, that is a story from when I was in the insurance industry. Uh, like many folks here in Iowa, I get, did my tenure in the insurance industry. Uh, so that was in the late 90s, um, you know, and Waterfall was a big deal, uh, their approach, their Big Bang releases. And uh, my, my responsibility then was to, um, to be part of what they called a new media department. And new media was really the predecessor to what is now a web team or web, web development engineering teams. And um, when you would call in to KVI, which is where this was, um, they're a third-party administrator. So if you had a question about your insurance information, uh, you would call a phone number. That phone number would ring at KVI, and they would quick, very quickly flip to the appropriate um, document in this giant binder that they would have on their desks. Um, and that's and they would read the information from those binders. And about once a day, somebody would deliver a new binder uh, kind of updates, and they would open it up and put the new information in. And, <laughs> Sounds and, fraught with problems. Oh, yeah, sure. It was a very old-school way of doing it. And so my responsibility was to digitize all that information into what we call today an extranet, uh, allow uh, that information. And so when that when that project was, was completed, um, you know, in standard fashion, like, oh, your job's done? Great. We're just going to take the books off, and I'm sure everybody will be just fine with the new new way of doing things. And I tell you, it threw the, the company into chaos for like two weeks. I think I slept in my car more than once to do that. And um, it was a great way to be introduced into uh, what is now, I consider, kind of a startup culture. <laughs> and change management. Right? And change management, which is <laughs> something I think uh, they could have invested a lot more in. So sure. why cold turkey and not a migration period? Um, you know, I just don't think, you know, they understood at the time. It was something that, you know, you looked at like, well, this is a big time savings. Um, you know, this is um, something to, to help uh, with the efficiency of things. And the sooner we can get there, uh, the better. Um, you know, and, and at the time, I didn't think you can change management was probably not something we spent a lot of time thinking about. I mean, they, the people on the phones just needed to get the information and it would be easier for them. And so um, completely different way. But uh I would definitely do it differently now. Well, experience is a great teacher. So you joined the Navy in 1993. What were your expectations going into the Navy? Um, well, my expectations of joining the Navy was to get out of Iowa, which <laughs> uh, every, I think, young person who grew up in Iowa wants to do. Um, I wanted to earn money for school. You know, I, like many, saw the movie Top Gun and decided sure. I was going to be the next Maverick or Goose yeah. um, in that. Um, what I... What I really wanted to do was kind of just see the world and get some experiences. Uh, my grandfather was a big influence on me, and he was in the service. Um, I, I'm an Eagle Scout, and I spent a lot of time in the Boy Scouts, and both my leaders were Navy veterans who had great stories around the campfire. And by the time I was you know, 13 years old, I had decided that that was going to happen. You were all in. Yeah, I was all in regardless <laughs> on what, you know, I wasn't even, I don't think I even took the SATs. I took the ASVAB as soon as I could, and I decided that was the career I was going to have. ASVAB. You have to help me out. 
there? Uh, I don't know what it stands for. The ASVAB is the uh, um, government or military equivalent of the SAT. It's a placement sure. exam. Okay. Um, so if you score very high, then you get to choose what I would consider white-collar jobs, yep. um, uh, IT positions, uh, radar operator, um, um, potentially uh, gives you the opportunity to go to additional A schools, which are schools that kind of teach you um, advanced skills, such as air traffic control or okay. um, you know, weapons training, things like that. All right. All right. So looking back now, how did the Navy shape you? Oh, <laughs> it, um, it, it did exactly what I think my parents were hoping it would do <laughs> um, when I went in. Uh, you know, like many teenagers, I was very ambitious but didn't quite have my act together in a number of ways. Um, but what the Navy taught me, um, you know, is probably, well, I would say it's the best leadership school in the world. Um, you have great examples of uh, brilliant leaders uh, leading people uh, for very important uh, situations. Um, you also have some great examples of terrible leadership. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, so you can learn what not to do right. um, and, and the artifacts of that and, and the way that that plays out in day to day life. But um, it gave me a real value of time. Uh, even today, if you're five minutes early, you're 10 minutes late. Uh, is what what it feels like, and so um, you know I've been blessed with two daughters, and and my wife and I even uh, just this weekend going out to to Easter, I'm standing by the door, you know, like hey, let's go, <laughs> got to get going, Line we're going to be late, we're going to be late. Uh, they could probably attest to the fact that I, I say those words, um, you know, a hundred times a week. So um, it, it definitely instilled kind of that sense of um, what right and wrong, and how to do things, um, how not to do things. Um, and then also that kind of that really important sense of community and uh, brother and sisterhood in, in the military that I think you get only in those kind of circumstances. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with many startups and young companies and old companies, and you can kind of get a, 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 a sense of that when you're going through the trenches and and you know starting things up. But um, you know I draw back from my military days just about every day in some aspect, and that is uh, it left a lasting impression on me. So today you work at Douala's VP of Product. I want to talk about your path to get to this point. So after the Navy, what was your first civilian job? Uh, well, my first civilian job, um, well, my very first one that I don't talk about a lot is that uh, I got out of the service and then uh, immediately went to work for the Easy Living Store, which I don't know is even around anymore. It, it might be. Uh, they installed central vacuums, wire shelving, and home theaters. No, oh, okay. And so I, uh, through um, a small personal network of mine, was able to kind of land that that job right out of the service. Uh, so I got to come home to a job waiting for me, to, uh, you know, kind of construction work. Yeah. Uh, it was very uh, clear to me quickly that that was not the career that I wanted. Hmm. Um, and so I applied in a number of places, you know, trying to translate that um, skill set from the service. When I, when I got out of the service, I was an air traffic controller for non-fixed wing aircraft. Okay. Um, so that means that I uh, had the opportunity to be on board ship, landing helicopters and flying them from from ship to ship and ship to land. Um, that is difficult to uh, translate outside of uh, the, the air, airline and airport and air yeah. traffic control and commercial. Um, Yet it's really important to do it right. Yeah, you really want to get that right uh, the first time every time. Um, and so, uh, but, but coming, you know, coming back home, uh, pretty high stress job. I wasn't really looking to do that as a career as well. Um, but when we were in port, uh, everybody has a second job. Um, their first, first priority, of course, is cleaning. So, um, I can clean a bathroom better than any three people I know because of that. Uh, but even, um, 
more importantly, you kind of have a set of responsibilities. And so I was a sensitive materials custodian, which meant I work with uh, what I would consider now antiquated databases, but uh, managing databases and sensitive materials such as charts and documents that the military, uh, we would have on board ship and I would organize those and keep them in the vault to make sure that they were updated. And so I kind of drew from that experience and then uh, applied for a, uh, an administrative specialist position at KVI, which is, we talked about that story a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And so I got the job. I was in a closet in the summertime installing a central vac port and I got the phone call uh, and I answered the phone call and uh, letting them, or they let me know that I, you know, would, they would like me to come on and and I remember doing this, you know, happy dance by myself in this vacant house yes. uh, that I got my first real career job. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and then that started my career. I worked for uh, KVI or uh, or in some some part KVI. Then it was Seabury and Smith. Then it was Seabury Marsh. And, and then now it's Marsh McClellan. And then being yeah. Marsh McClellan for the next. What is 10 it about years. the insurance industry? The names just keep on changing for some uh, of them. Yeah, they change because they get bought and sold and yeah, bought and sold, do. and hopefully uh, you get to stick around. Yeah. So what took you to GeoLearning? Was this your first quote-unquote startup or early-stage growth company? Uh, yes, it was. Um, you know, my mom retired from the principal financial group. Um, you know, she, she, that was her first job right out of high school. She mm. worked in a typewriter pool. Oh, um, wow. Um, and uh, she, she worked her way up. She was a great inspiration of mine. To She worked way up from a typewriter pool to a director of the print mail facilities nice. um, here in Urbandale. And so I grew up going to work with her at different places and yeah. different things. And it really kind of Im- imposed upon me, like, hey, I, I'm going to find a good company to work for, and, and they're going to you know, take care of me. And, yeah. Um, when when I left uh, Marsh, um, they did a series of layoffs for ver- various things, and so I found myself in a position for the first time that, um, gosh, I really had considered just working working at one place for my career, just like my mom did. And so GeoLearning was hiring project managers, so they had their job description on the website, and uh, I started reading it. I'm like, well, I don't know what some of these words are. I have to look them up, but um, I'm pretty sure I can do the job. Uh, that kind of just is the same kind of um, work, you know. It's 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 being organized, it's communicating, it's um, documenting things, and I've done that in the service and at, at, at Marsh sure, and sure. all that stuff. And so, um, you know, I went there uh, because one, I needed a job really badly. Um, two, I was happy to be out of insurance, and, and three, they had really cool furniture in the office. <laughs> uh, it was the first time I thought, wow, this is a really neat work environment. It's kind there's, of a fun place. To yeah, work. there's no cubicles. It's like these yeah. neat, neat, cool uh, chairs and kind of like glass things, and uh, the carpet was funky, and they had artwork, and they had a, a ping pong table. And a foosball table yep. and a kitchenette, and uh, it, it blew my mind that that somebody could actually work at those places. So I got really motivated there. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, project management, which is still one of the more demanding jobs, but more important jobs. If you talk about what it takes to run a company day to day, and even strategically, a good project manager is worth their weight in gold. We used to have project managers and program managers, and they were as highly paid as our engineers because. We were managing projects twenty, thirty million dollar spend on one project. So getting it right, especially when you're tooling up for a manufacturing run of hundreds of thousands of units, it really mattered. Did the military add an extra amount of capability, do you think, from a project management standpoint? Without a doubt. Yeah. I think that there's when people are I see so many people coming out of the military trying to find that first job, like you talked about, and trying to translate skills. In fact, you and I had an experience with an intern that had come out of the military and you saw the the intern's resume and you were the one that could translate those skill sets 
for the non-military people to understand. And I, I think of those positions, I sometimes wish there was a way to find and get the, the general community to go, you know what, whenever we have these kinds of jobs, we just need to go find veterans yeah. <laughs> and give them that. Because once you got in the door uh, at KBI, you went through a lot of different positions, had a lot of different skill sets, and people started adopting to you as a, you're not a military guy anymore. They, you have a resume now that they understand, if you will. That's a nice way to say it. Sure. Um, you know, I attribute that a lot to my, my very first uh, corporate boss. Her name's Kathy Tilgis. Uh, she was able to kind of translate what I was good at into what um, corporate uh, expectations were yeah. and then kept giving me those experiences. And I think that's something for um, especially people who are looking for, for good people. You know, one thing I, I talk about a lot to um, my folks that I manage as well as our leadership team is you know, looking for attitude and aptitude, not necessarily the right resume. Um, I've seen some very, very talented people write some great r- resumes that, that don't actually translate to the kind of work that oh, we need. Oh, sure. That's really common. And something to keep in mind is that you know, the military, you know, they have a really important job. They don't get paid nearly enough for it because they're volunteers, let's not forget. The, the thing is, is that the job that they do or what is written down on their job description is only just a fraction of the responsibilities sure. that they have. And, you know, trying to understand... The responsibilities that that someone, uh, a veteran coming out of the service, uh, you know, they've been able to have so many more experiences and see so many things and the cultural diversity that that is on board ship and the types of uh, countries that they visit and the expectations that they have and and the things that they do every day. Um, it's hard to translate to a corporate world. I mean, there's a matter of fact, there's a there's a class that you take when you get out just to reacclimate you back into civilian life because it's. It's a completely different world. Uh, yeah. The way you speak, the way you uh, act. Um, you know, the, the great thing is you don't ever have to worry about picking out what clothes to wear um, <laughs> when you're in the service because it's the same uh, same yeah, thing. Right. So, I think the modern employer today should take a really strong look at a lot of the veterans, um, either the veteran placement organizations, or uh, having that experience on a resume. Not to underutilize that. Um, that comes with it a set of skill sets that is really difficult to write down and translate. Giving them another look. Uh, answering some maybe different questions and, and not use the, the vernacular that you would in the discipline that you're talking about, right. but more so talking about life experiences and the experiences they have and trying to draw that out through an interview process. I think that would yield um, far better results. You know, someone who does a lot of hiring, I specifically look for that. And, um, you know, I have a rule, with, you know, if they've had that experience and the, the resume is, you know, just a little bit off, I still give them a chance because I think that there's, well, I know actually firsthand that there's a whole set of experiences in that one line item that, that is very difficult to, to translate back. Yeah, and it's interesting because some of the things you just hit on are the things that when, when you talk about great employees, you know, get past the hiring process, what makes a great employee? The person that can deal in a multicultural environment that gets that, the person that knows what it's like to be a leader and to be led. I mean, it's hard sometimes for me when I work with startups and I'm helping them with something. They'll see me as more of a leader type because my background, and it's like, no, give me a task. Lead me. Tell me what you need to get done, and I will get it done for you. But you're the leader. You know, it's that ability to flip who's the leader. Uh, to me, the military people I've worked with in my past completely could do that just on a dime. I'm, I'm leading this project. I am not leading this project. I'm a doer on this project. And they just went into that role. And to me, that was a skill set that a lot of people couldn't relate to. They couldn't get over the hump of, well, I'm not the leader today. It's like, well, no, not on this thing. I really think that's the artifact of a rigid chain of command. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that even in the corporate world and, and you know, even in startup culture, you know, there's companies that don't even have job titles for, you know, a year into the into the the company's life just because everybody's kind of doing a yeah. lot of things. They're the hat racks, right? Yeah. They're wearing hats, doers. <laughs> um, employee. My title yeah. is employee. Yes, employee number, because that's probably super important. Probably, a lot yeah, of those that ones. one matters. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, but the military, you know, they have a very established chain of command and it, it because they have to. They have so many Certainly. people coming in and out of of that those organizations from various backgrounds and educational um, backgrounds, and so um, having the ability to know, like, oh, this is my rate and rank, and I have this responsibility for this group of people, but I am responsible for this group of people. Right. Um, and having that experience um, and living it as part of a lifestyle more than just what you do at work, because remember, you live you live there and you work there in a lot of cases, especially in the Navy. Um, yeah. You know, you, you live in the same place that you work, um, which can be a real drag sometimes. I think that's. That's definitely indicative of the, the scenario that laid out. It's it's really um, part of that culture. Well, you talked you touched for a minute there on you know the need for a chain of command and a strong chain of command. It's like if you've ever been in a company when all hell breaks loose, and I mean bad. We had a situation in my company in the mid '90s where we were embezzled for four million dollars, and we almost lost the whole company. And there were seven hundred people working there at the time. You know, a stronger chain of command would have been more helpful. But the ones that could lead well, that's what got us through it. Was okay, we, we need to stop complaining and get to work kind of attitude of how do we fix this. And I think that's part of what comes out of it. So going back to geo-learning, um, was there a new set of skills you had to develop and acquire as you as you got into geo-learning? Oh, sure. Like in any career change or any new, new position that you hold, I think that uh, you should take the opportunity to learn there, you know, and, and getting a title of project manager, actually having that title for the first time in my career, you know, being... Um, exposed to now formalizing those processes as part of a, a methodology, which before it was more like, well, this seems like the right way to do it versus, oh, you mean there's documentation on how to do it and, and there's phases and there's uh, you know, artifacts that get generated from there and, and you're yeah. learning the, the vernacular of those. And um, But more importantly, I think the biggest takeaway from, from that was um, becoming the face of the organization because I worked directly with our customers. Oh, okay. um, and so that was the first time that I represented the, our company in a way. Um, and how you know you represent the company and the professionalism and, and what you do there uh, really gave me a set of experiences that I, I draw from today still. Yeah, and anybody that's had to do a customer-facing job is a much more well-rounded employee. It's uh, There's no substitute for having to live with the customer. I had a boss who's, who would go around, he was the president of the company, and he'd literally ask you, when's the last time you were out with a customer? I mean, we're talking about, I was a VP of marketing, he'd do this with the VP of engineering, the CFO, everybody, when have you been out with a customer recently? It's like, get out, go spend a day with the customer just to get your head in the game where it needed to be. So after a stint at QCI, you joined Influence Software as COO. Uh, were you ready for that role when you stepped into it? Oh, absolutely not. That that was one of the kind of roles that kind of happened to me okay. more than um, it was something I sought after. Uh, so QCI is a great a great company. I did some consulting after GeoLearning, right. and um, while I was doing that, though, it was in the early two thousands, and I was at a at an insurance company doing project management work uh, that I had done before. At that point, it had become a little bit less exciting. Yeah. Project management for insurance products that have a life uh, project lifespan of years. Um, can get a little bit um, laborious. It's yeah. not the most exciting work. And I went to um, a wedding with my wife, whom uh, 
I love very much, but I didn't know the people in the wedding. So uh, I was at a table kind of by myself when the dancing started, yeah. uh, along with a couple other folks who were at that table uh, who also didn't know the people. And didn't I met like at that dancing. same table at yeah. the wife's <clears throat> reunion. I know that table well. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of sat there with a glass of wine and just kind of wait for it to be over. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I got to, to talking with a gentleman there, and he had told me he'd secured some capital for an idea that he had, a software idea. And I... You know, as you do, like, hey, you know, I I know how to do some stuff. You know, when that when you get that rolling, let me know. Yeah, and uh, I'll be happy to come talk with you about it. You know, I'd, I'd love to get out from this insurance company. Game, yeah, man. Yeah. Um, and, and and several months went by, and I kind of just wrote it off as the thing you do at the at the party. Yeah. Um, and um, then I got a phone call, and he said, Hey, I, I've secured this capital. We're ready to go. Uh, I got some space. When can you start? <laughs> and I just had had one of those days. It was I remember it was a Tuesday afternoon. And um, and I was sitting in a gray cubicle with gray floors and gray people and gray work, and I was ready to do something different. Yeah. And uh, I jumped at the opportunity, and it was me and him. And he was a CEO, and I was the COO of a two-person oh, company. Two-person company. Right. Um, now, that company ended up growing into 26 people, and nice. we were just shy of uh, $10 million in revenue. Um, we had a, a great experience with that. Um, and not all experiences are are fun, but uh, they are important, I think. Yeah. And I had some of the most important experiences in my career uh, during that stint at Influent. And I know that many, many of those employees could say the same thing. We all came out and uh, survived that, which was great. What did Influent Software do for their customers? What kind of company was it? Um, it was a predecessor to the consumer web to print solutions that people see today, like a Picasa or oh, sure. uh, like um, Google has that integrated with Google Photos. You can go and select the photos that you want and, um, and have them printed in, in books. Um, we were a commercial version of that for professional photographers oh, okay. um, using a brand new technology called Flex at the time. Yeah. Um, and, and we were able to interface with uh, these great big uh, pr- presses, these six color uh, HP presses that uh, commercial photographers use to permit. Uh, so you were digital to press? Yes. Okay. Uh, and so they could um, not have to pay the license for uh, Photoshop and, and, and put a book together. We could write software that would automate a lot of that for them sure. so they could get it out faster, which was really that the, the drove down their overhead, which great idea. Uh, it was exactly the right time to have that business. We had a lot of good um, experiences with that, but, um, you know, as technology catches up, it's, it's hard to monetize yeah, the, those things. The, the life expectancy of a technology-based company <laughs> is short if you're just a technology-based company. Yes. And that's, you better be solving a real problem that's durable long-term or you'll have a short life. For sure. Yeah. So you spent almost 10 years at Workiva. How big was Workiva when you started there? Um, it was... So after Influent, um, I worked for myself for just a short period of time, about a year and a half, and... Uh, um, got back into the startup scene. Um, and when I was invited to come to Workiva, I think there was 23 other people there. Wow. Um, and most of them were engineers or doing development work of some sure, kind, sure. Uh, as young in, you know, software companies are. You know, folding tables and expensive laptops, and that's, uh, that's how it was. They had their priorities in the right place. You get a really great laptop, you get an <laughs> okay chair and a really bad yeah, table. Yep, one long table that just kept, as we uh, brought in new employees, we'd get another folding table, and it got st- put in the end, and we called it Big Table, and it was, uh, um, I think that's how most startups start now. It's funny, because it is. You start with one person, you get a desk, you get two, you get a little longer desk for table and off it goes and yeah. what is it about folding tables it's just like uh, they're cheap they're cheap that's what and you can get them right now you, you get them right now an and you can take them with you that's right 
<laughs> so you, uh, how many roles did you have at Workiva? Ah, uh, gosh, that's good. Uh, I think, well, I had four different job titles. The roles, probably a hundred. They blend, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Um, I started as a senior QA manager, uh, mm. then became director of quality, um, took on a delivery management organization, so that was a quality and delivery management uh, responsibility, and then ended up uh, the VP of product development there, which is oversight of, of a good chunk of the engineers, delivery, uh, quality, things like that. Do you like managing engineers? You know, I do, actually. Um, I, I often joke that I've built a career out of being a translator um, from the kind of tech to business side. Yeah. Um, it's a very specific language. Uh, it's a very specific type of uh, person, um, their values, the way that they work, what they like, what they don't like, what makes them successful, uh, what's distracting to them, and, and understanding that and, and, and being able to kind of foster those environments um, and then help help other folks understand that in order to, to get the most from uh, those resources is an important role. Yeah, and it's funny because you think about the amount of money we spend, any company spends in an engineering department, it's a very large amount of money. And you think just a simple mistranslation can cost you? Oh, yeah, it's uh, expensive. A really to do sad something. amount of money <laughs> for sure. It's expensive to do something uh, the first time. It's even more expensive to do the same thing three oh, or four times. Oh yeah, it's so much more painful. So you've had roles in product development, product quality, and product management. For those who have not been in a large organization, break down what the difference is about these three roles and how they interrelate. Um, sure. Uh, well. I think the easiest way is, you know, the, the product roles, the ones that, um, like product manager, VP of product, head of product, those roles really focus on on the what uh, we're building and, and the why it's important to our customers and right. to the company. Right. Whereas uh, the engineering roles or product development roles um, are focusing on on the how it gets done and then who's doing it. Um, I think that you know having that delineation of kind of the what we're doing versus the how we're doing. Very frequently, I see that line in the middle kind of getting blurry um, yeah. on who does that. And uh, I think that um, in, in my experience and being kind of on both sides of that fence, uh, one uh, establishing a, um, a healthy respect for both of those sides is important. Knowing uh, the challenges of both of those, but um, being very clear about. Um, whose responsibility is what, and letting the people who uh, have those competencies do the thing that they're really good at. Right. Yeah, stay out of their way as well, right? Stay out of their out of their space. <laughs> yeah, ideally. Yeah, ideally. No, I, yeah. You know, I've I've had the same issue or same challenge of managing a large technical team. It is a challenge, and 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 to do it well means efficiency and keeping people moving and keeping them moving forward. Uh, it's very expensive when they're not moving forward. So, what brought you to Douala? Well, Workiva uh, is a very successful organization. Um, going from a small company to an IPO to where they're at today and, and what they're accomplishing uh, at the enterprise level is, is um, very, very impressive. Uh, and with that comes um, growth and, and scaling. And um, my role there, uh, the oversight of, of several hundred employees and working um, you know, and traveling and, and doing all those things uh, is great for, for a career. Um, but where I'm at in my career right now, there's so many uh, experiences that I haven't got to have mm. and that I, I knew that I really wanted to have. And so, um, you know, through, through those networks and those opportunities, um, I, I got invited to Douala to, to help define kind of the what 
uh, for for a, a vertical that I wasn't familiar with, a fintech vertical. Yeah. Um, you read a lot about those in the news. You read a lot about them in, in the tech journals and the kind of innovative things they're doing with you know hundred year old bank law. Yeah, um, it, it gets uh, you start you know wondering like, well, how exactly does that work? Um, and I, I came across an opportunity to do that, and I was very grateful for that opportunity. And so, uh, being able to help define the, the what for an industry like that has been exciting so far. Yeah, I think it's interesting because Duala has the added beyond just being fintech. They're moving, they're messing with money, and the the laws and the regulation and the architecture around electronically moving money. Um, I think it's one of those things where it sounds simple. We go to the ATM, we get a couple hundred dollars out of our checking account or savings account, and off we go. And uh, it just is so brutally complex underneath what it really takes to keep that system working. Uh, especially given all the tax that's under all the time, because it's oh. it's money. Of course, bad people are going to attack it. <laughs> of course, yes, for so, sure. So what advice do you have for uh, those others dealing with the not-so-fun part of managing the day-to-day of the growth company? Because they always sound great. And it's, oh, I'm, you know, you manage the, this of this at a growth company, a really cool company. But the truth is there are some really hard days. I'd say that um, you have a lot more hard days than you have the, the great days. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at it from, you know, coming home every day and, you know, I, as most do, kind of reflect on the day and what was hard and what was um, not as hard. Um, I think one of the most important things is to realize that you're not alone in that, that there are positions like yours in multiple companies. Um, yeah. Spending some time to, to seek wise counsel of your peers and to uh, find um, organizations where you can participate in roundtables, yeah. um, into you know meetups and things like that. That has been really, really important uh, for me is to to seek out folks who understand. Uh, to at least you know at the very least you can lament uh, yeah. together. You can empathize, uh, yeah. Right. And then, um, but very often, uh, one or two conversations at a, at a roundtable or at a meetup um, brings new ideas and a different perspective. Um, I'd say also. Uh, Equally as important, um, it's really important uh, to find some time to rest. Um, You know, I think that in this culture, it's so easy to get wrapped up in, um, you know, the thing that we have to do next or the sense of urgency around something. And and as a leader in in these industries, especially in these verticals that are very demanding, either technically or cognitively, you know, tired leaders make bad decisions. You want to make sure that you have time to rest, that you uh, take that time. Um, a lot of organizations like Dewalla are going to unlimited PTO because they realize that you want somebody's best. Yeah. Um, and if you if you want somebody's best, then um, they have to find that time to, to recharge and rejuvenate so they can give you that best. Um, that's a, a really important um, piece of that too. So Dewalla's growing and your team's growing. Uh, what's it been like to find and hire talented employees in Des Moines? To be perfectly honest, Mike, it's been pretty tough. You know, it's not that there that there isn't great talent here in Des Moines, for sure. I will say in the fintech industry, there's probably less experienced fintech uh, company employees that are currently looking. Um, I know that, you know, Dwala being kind of a for, front runner uh, in this industry in, in the Midwest and in Des Moines, it's a lot difficult to find folks who've done it before around here. Um, engineering types the same way um, in an up market like it is now. And uh, there is a, a lot of good small companies that are starting up or have started up that are in the, their growth stages right now and lots of great places to work. The Midwest and Iowa is a 
great place to have a company. Yeah. Um, and Des Moines, you know, has a lot to offer for that. And it's hard to, it's hard to compete with that development right now. Yeah. So do you find doing business in Des Moines challenging overall? Um, doing business, I don't. Actually, you know, in my career, I've had the opportunity to travel quite a bit um, yeah. to both coasts and uh, to um, the Denver Boulder uh, startup scene has been something that, you know, where Cuban had an office there, I was there quite a bit, or, or Bozeman and Missoula, those are also um, high-tech companies, or high-tech locations for companies. Doing business in Des Moines is, in my opinion, pretty easy. Yeah. Um, I think if you can get past some of the, the risk-averse, um, you know, companies to work with, because, uh, you know, insurance, they're, they're, they're not known for their <laughs> well, cutting when edge. When you say insurance, their yeah. job is to be adverse yeah. to risk. Yeah. I kind of want their them to. job, you know. Yeah. Yes, you do. Yeah, you do. Um, so. But as far as, like, doing business, I mean, there's so many uh, people who are willing to help you, uh, to help you understand things, to apply resources, um, all of that. Uh, I think it's um, a great place to do business, honestly. So how have mentors influenced your journey? Uh, substantially. I can uh, easily say I, w- I would not be where I am today without uh, the set of people who have come alongside me um, in my career to answer questions and encourage me and help me understand things for sure. What qualities do you look for in a good mentor? Well, uh, I like to joke they should have an appropriate amount of gray hair. I think that's important. How about no hair? Uh, even better. That's okay. a bonus. All right. I was say. <laughs> and uh, no hair with gray, gray highlights. Yeah, gray uh, highlights. Yeah, what, what little's yeah. left is gray. I think that you are uh, exactly right where you're supposed to be, Mike. <laughs> Actually, one of the things that sounds uh, counterintuitive that I've found to be um, really helpful is uh, looking for mentor outside of the industry that you're in. And I think that is because having a fresh perspective without fully understanding. Um, they can take a commonsensical approach to that. They can take a, um, a more of a, you know, have you thought through all of these things in more mm-hmm. of a general sense, which actually makes you think in a completely different way. Well, they ask interesting questions, don't they? They yes. ask innocent questions, and a lot of times they're, uh, they, they don't make the assumptions those with experience make. Yes, and they abstract it from the specific situation very easily through that, those questions, which helps you kind of look at things from their perspective or a different perspective. Also, um, I think one of the qualities is that you want someone who can be just very frank with you, very honest, uh, so they can ask the hard question um, and have that relationship with you um, to, to, you know, kind of get past the the niceties and get past the politically correctness in a lot of ways. Enough of the Iowa nice. Yeah. It's like, uh, actually, I think that this thing that you're doing is silly. And the reason why I think that is this, why haven't you thought about it this way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's something I value. So what about mentees? What qualities should they have? Um, Well, first, I guess to go with that, you have to be okay at being asked hard questions. You do. Um, I think uh, part of that is you really need to be honest with yourself. Find somebody that you can trust, uh, that that you feel you're comfortable with speaking with, and then just listen to what they're saying with, um, you know, no expectations, being honest with yourself about the kinds of things that they're saying. um, Because, you know, deep down, you know, they're here to help you. uh, At least they should be. Um, I'd say that as a mentee, um, people often strive for for a specific presence. You know, they want to be a certain person. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you come into a mentor-mentee relationship with trying to project a persona, uh, yeah. especially one that you're not yet yeah. or that you want to be, um, I think you'll you'll end up not getting the most from that relationship. Yeah. 
Um, come into that, who you are, um, be honest with who you want to be, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what your opportunities are. You know, leave who you're, you're not at the door and, and just uh, li- listen with an open mind. Yeah, it's kind of like open the kimono. You know, open yourself up, take off the guards. Yep. And, and the, yeah. So for those of you listening who are looking for a mentor and those who want to give back by being a mentor, uh, check out dsmpartnership.com slash mentorconnection. Uh, we do a lot of work with connecting mentors and mentees. Travis Hensley, thank you for being on Startup Stories. It's been my pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Small Business and Startup Stories DSM podcast. Inspired by these stories, we offer a hub full of resources needed for any small business owner to grow and succeed in Greater Des Moines, Iowa at dsmpartnership.com slash small business. Thanks for listening.